You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Last week in the tent. Uh, next week we're going to be in our yeah, awesome yeah. Uh, we're going to be in our main building again, and it's not going to look quite finished because it's not. Um, we can't put the carpet down until the concrete has cured for a full 30 days. But everything else is done. But it there's a funny thing about that last finishing touch. Whenever you're doing any sort of project, it looks like 50% of the work, but it's only like the last 10. They've done so much in there. Uh, Chuck and Kelly have done an amazing job coordinating, bringing everything together. Um, it's been fantastic. And it'll be exciting to be in a really echoey, echoey, echoey room for a couple weeks. Uh, but we are continuing in First Samuel today. We have two more weeks of First Samuel and we'll be finished. It's been like a year. I'm going strong. We're going to make it. Um, but a little bit of a recap from the last two chapters of 1 Samuel to give us some context of what's going on here. Uh, two chapters ago, we encountered Saul, and he is amassing Israelite, Israel's forces because the Philistine army is coming up against them, and they're so numerous, it's incredibly overwhelming. He has no idea what to do. He has no, no hope for them winning. He needs to get some advice, some counsel. He needs to get some wisdom from God. And no matter where he turns, God is silent. He's desperate. So he ends up going against some specific commandments that God put before them, and he goes and he consults a medium. He consults a medium to bring up Samuel out of the ground. And so Samuel says, what on earth are you doing? Why are you calling me up? If God isn't answering you, why do you think I'm going to be able to? Because of all the things you've done, Saul, tomorrow you're going to be with me here. And it's not tomorrow if you go into battle, you'll be with me here. Tomorrow if you go up against the Philistines. Tomorrow if you fight, it's tomorrow. That's something you can't run away from. That's inevitability coming today. Because for most of us, we know at some point we will depart and we will meet Jesus face to face. But to be told tomorrow, what would you do with that? It's inescapable, it's coming. You have 24 hours to sit on this. Tomorrow you'll be with me, Saul. I just can't imagine even being in that kind of headspace for Saul. So then we actually, we pan back over to David and we go back about a week and he's with the Philistine army marching up to Israel, marching up to meet Saul. And this is a really bad position for David and his men to be in because they're Israelites. So they've got to make some really hard choices. Either we fight against Israel, our people, which we plan on going back to, and that'll be an awkward conversation. <laughs> or we turn against the Philistines <coughs> who have taken us in. In which point we won't be able to stay anymore. And everyone will know we did that. So we won't have anywhere else we can go. And Saul still doesn't like us. So we can't even stay here. So they're in a terrible spot, and through God's providence, he, um, and the, um, utilizing the lords of the Philistines, they had the same set of thoughts of, we can't have David here, because what if he turns against us? He's a war hero. He's going to slaughter us. Tell him to go home. And so David and his men actually get back 
get to go back home. It's probably a pretty high-flying moment for them. They're, they were relieved of any of those really difficult choices. They get to go back home. They don't have to be a part of this conflict. This is probably a, a good spot. And ironically enough, our talk today is going to be about difficulty, distress, anger, and frustration. And this is what we're coming out of. And how does that happen? And so when I was thinking about the title of the talk today, that's not what I ever, I never do that part first. It's not like, all right, we need a really good title to emphasize this whole thing. I can't, I can't do that. I've got to know everything that God wants to say, and then how do I wrap that up into something? And so I'd gone through my whole notes. All right, Lord, what is the emphasis of this? And it really comes back to what has the Lord given us? Because a big part of this is when that gets taken away. How do we respond? How do we react? How do we handle the situation when the direst times in life come upon us? How do we look at the things we were given? Do we hold on to them so dearly and identify ourselves with them so that suddenly we are so rocked and we don't even know how to approach God within that moment because it was taken away? It brought to mind out of Job verse uh, chapter 1, verse 21. It says, and, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you're not familiar with the story of Job, Job was a righteous man. He did everything correctly before God. And he was extremely wealthy. He's very blessed. Tons of cattle, tons of herds, tons of servants incredibly blessed man and he had a large family that loved him he had done well in his life and he walked righteously before God and in one day everything was taken away house collapsed on his children raiders came and took all the flocks killed off all of his servants only three people escaped to tell him what had happened and this is Job's response in that moment when everything is gone utterly wiped out. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we read this, it's happened so long ago, it can just sound like a story or a parable. But to have the realization that this is an account of something somebody has actually walked through and to realize that we can walk through the same thing and will we respond in the same way? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Will we be able to worship in that moment? Will we be able to thank God in that moment? Will we be able to honor Him in those devastating moments? So with that in mind, I know we're on a high note here. Everyone looks so excited. First Samuel 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Najeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taking captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. This is a repercussion. David and his men have been making raids against the Amalekites for over a year now. And that's actually something had been called to by God. All of Israel was called to this, was to rid the land of the people groups 
that were the abominable practices before God. And the Amalekites are a part of that. So they're doing the work that God's called them to. They're stepping up. They're going out. They're risking their lives day by day to serve the Lord. We have to realize when we go out every day, day by day, to serve the Lord, there will be a worldly response to our actions. The devil is not going to take it lying down. He does not like that you're serving God. He does not like that you're advancing his kingdom. And he's going to respond to the things we do. And that's hard to accept because we walk forward and we go, but God, I'm serving you. How could this still happen? As the world responds, the repercussions. And we have to put ourselves in their, in their place for a moment, what that feels like. Imagine you're marching home, you're on a high note. We didn't have to go in this conflict, oh, praise God. Oh, I can't wait to see my wife and my kids. Oh, and I bet, I bet she's cooking the lamb just the way I like it. Mm, I can already smell it. Can you smell it? I can smell it. What is that I smell? That's a lot more smoke. That's, a, that's like burning hay and wheat. It's a weird smell. And you crest the hill and it's gone. Smoldering ruins. We come home now and you, have, you smell that, that smell of smoke, that smell of it, just kind of that crinkling sound that happens as the cold air meets the coals. It's been there for a little while. It's surreal, that moment. Everything is gone. That still happens now with fires. To come home, that's, that's the, the worst that could happen with all the things. It's just the whole, your home, the place you retreat to, the place that is comforting. Home is gone. All the memories that you had in there, they're just memories now. And on top of that, they start looking around, where are the people? Did they all get out? Are they okay? What's going on? And these are military men, so they start looking around and they realize there's been a conflict here. They're not just gone, they've been taken. We don't know who's done this. We don't know where they've gone. What do we do? The gravity of it, they want it, it needs to sit heavy in this moment. The time of distress of what you would go through emotionally in this time. How would you respond? And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I've never cried that much that I had no more strength to weep. I'm trying to imagine it, that it's just such despair and anguish and tears that you've got nothing left but to roll over and fall asleep. You are just utterly spent physically, emotionally by this ordeal, by what do we do? It's all gone. Not, even all, not only all the stuff, but all the people. It's gone. David's two wives also had been taken. Ahanoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Now in there, it mentioned David's two wives, which is odd 
because they've already said everybody's been taken away. And when I read everybody, that's usually in my mind, I think everybody, that would include them. So why mention it? Because scripture doesn't do things arbitrarily. There's a purpose to it. It's an emphasis here. When we see something that's oddly specific in scripture, pause. What are you saying here, God? The emphasis is that everyone's been affected by this. From the greatest to the least, everyone is now equal in this tragedy. There's no one that's better off than anyone else. And in these times, these desperate times, people make bad choices. That is not the time to be making big decisions. And they want to hold something, somebody responsible. Let's kill David. You know, because David, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here. Yeah! We wouldn't have gone on that crusade. Yeah! We wouldn't have gone up and marched. We'd have been home with our families. Yeah! Yeah! That is not the time to be making that kind of decision. David is actually the one that's given these people purpose and hope and care for the last several years of their life. These are the outcasts. These are the downtrodden. These are the ones that had no other place in Israel, and they went to David, and he gave them a place. He gave them purpose. He trained them up. They're the elite of the elite because of David being there. And although, yes, they're there because of David, David didn't carry off their families. David didn't want any of these things to happen, and he didn't intend to. He's simply been trying to be obedient unto the Lord. And so he's in a really bad spot. And so what he did was what we need to do in that moment, is he strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't argue against them. He didn't rally. He didn't hold a, a conference. No, he strengthened himself in God. God, what am I going to do? I got a lot of angry people, and they're angry for some good reasons right now. What are we going to do, God? And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. If you're not familiar with the ephod, it's kind of a priestly robe that they put on. It's a very special one. It has a pocket inside of it. It was for the high priest to minister before the Lord in. And that special pocket hold, held the uman and the thuman. Those are just a couple of specific stones used to divinely consult God with. And so we've got a big question. We're going to use the right, we're going to go about this the right way to encounter God in this moment. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I purpose after this band? Because that's the obvious thing right here. Are we going to get the people back? Is that what we need to do? Which direction do we go, Lord? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. That's some good news. That's what you want to hear in this moment. You're going to be victorious. But we have to realize what has been heard is you shall surely rescue. It's not, hey, turn around. All has been returned and delivered to you. Hey, there's someone else that came and got everybody and here you go. You don't have to worry about it. No, you will be able to do this through the strength the Lord provides. There's a stepping forward that has to take place and another step and another step and another step. And there's going to be some challenges along the way. Realizing 
that God has something for us to do within this. There's going to be deliverance and you've got a part to play. You've got to keep moving forward. And you've got to have faith within it. You've got to have faith that God's going to do this great thing. You've got to have faith that everyone's going to be all right. You've got to have faith that it's going to be resolved quickly. And just so we're all under the same page, there is no decision in this life that cannot wait for you to ask God. In the dire moment, there's urgency to get something done, to move, to act, to not just sit, to not just worry. I got to do something so I know something's happening. Asking God is doing something. And it's doing something important. Because in the most dire moments of your life, and you need to walk through it, and you need to get through it, you want Jesus there with you. Because you're going to end up in the best possible place you can be if he is there with you. But if you go off on your own, he's still, he's going to wait till you realize, you should have came to me first. He's always right there. But there's an expectation that we turn to him. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bazor, where those who were left behind stayed. Odd placement, because they just got there. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bazor. That's a third of your forces of an already small group of people. That would not be an easy pill to swallow knowing that your ranks have been cut down that much. But we have to realize what's gone on here. They were on the northern front getting ready to attack Israel and they were sent back home. That's somewhere, depending on exactly where they were at, between an 18 and 25 mile hike every day for three days to get back home. And then, once they got there, they wept bitterly until they had no more strength such emotional and physical exhaustion. And then after they consulted God, they set out again to get to the brook of Bazor, which is somewhere between 12 and 16 miles from where they were at. There's only so much the human body can do. There are limits we have. And it's important to recognize that if we push beyond that, it's going to make things worse. If they hadn't stopped, if they pursued forward with just the mindset, well, they need me. I got to be a part of this. They can't, I'm going to be letting them down if I have to stop. To realize if they had kept going, they'd have collapsed. And then those that had been able to go forward would have had to care for them and carry them back. And then you'd have even less then. Sometimes it's important to realize that we've met our personal limits. And this can be hard. This can be hard, especially if you're all going through the same thing together and they can press forward and you cannot. That's hard. That weighs on you. But we have to realize that the gifts that they've been given, just like the gifts you were given, have been given by God. Their ability to press on in this, if when we really realize what's going on here, is because God is allowing that to happen in them. God is strengthening them through it. And for whatever reason, you need to stop. And to not take that as a failure, but realizing everybody has 
a limit. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. That's oddly specific. And when he had eaten, his spirit was revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me over into the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to this band. And I really felt strongly when I was going through the passage that this was an important stopping point, but I didn't know why, so I spent a long time mulling over this section. I really feel it's important for two specific reasons. And it's talking about how we treat people, whether well or not, when we don't have to. Because consider the situation. They're following after the band. It's probably a very large group of people. We can assess that from what we're going to find out later in the chapter. So that, that makes a mess on a road. It's not like what we have here where you never notice that somebody walked across it. It's a dirt path. It's got fields. It's open country. And so whatever they're going to walk over, this army of people, you're going to notice they were there. And that's what they're following after right now. And they come across this random individual who doesn't look like anybody around here and happens to be on the same path, they probably have something to do with what's gone on. They could have made some very specific demands of him before ever doing anything for him. But they didn't. They chose to give him water, to give him food, to give him a cake, to give him raisins, to give him more than they had to. They went above the minimum, even though they held all the cards, they had all the authority, they had them all the right, and this person is probably someone who has wronged us. But they didn't, cho- they didn't choose to treat him unwell. They chose to treat him with respect. They chose to treat him honorably. They chose to care for somebody, and they chose to give him the benefit of the doubt on top of that. How do we respond to people when we have all the authority, we have all the power, and you don't have to be nice about what you're saying? You don't have to be sympathetic. You can just tell them, this is what it is, and you need to go and do that. You messed up. You're done. How do we respond when we don't have to respond kindly? Do we still treat people with respect when we ourselves have all the authority? And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. When that's the number 
that's used to describe the small amount? You know, just a few got away on the camels, like 400. How many people must there have been? There are only 400 of David's men with him. And it says he struck them down from twilight, which is early morning, until the evening of the next day, which is weird to think of in the way we think of time. It's that night for them. They fought them all day long. They went on the 18 to 25 mile hike for three days straight. They wept bitterly until they were so emotionally and physically exhausted they had nothing left. They took another 12 to 16 mile walk to the brook. And then they hiked down here and they fought all day long. How is this humanly possible? It's not but for the grace of God. That's the emphasis here. That's the importance here. That's the things we need to realize when we grasp the scope of what it's describing. They couldn't have done this without God. That's actually even become extra important in the passage to come. That the only reason they were able to do this isn't because they're so great. With this level of exhaustion, they, they should have been sloppy. Some should have fallen. But everybody is delivered through this. That doesn't happen without the grace of God. David recognized that all that the, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. We're really happy with David now. We're not going to stone him. Who thought of stoning this guy? <laughs> then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bazor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, I want to pause there for a moment. These are men amongst the 400 that just were a part of this amazing feat, that were a part of the battle. And some of them are described as wicked and worthless fellows. How can this be? There's a realization we need to have is that there are going to be people in our lives that we come across that might seem like they're right in the line with God's work, but they are not in God's motivation. They have enough motivation as it is here to go and try to do this, to be in the slipstream of what God's doing because all of their stuff is gone. Their home was burned down. Their children and their wives and probably their parents, anyone that was elderly, was taken from them. They've got motivation on their own. And they're just slipping right in with what God's doing because they want their stuff back. And because they're a part of what God's doing doesn't mean they're following after God within it. It doesn't mean they're having faith in God. It means they're having faith in themselves in this instance. <coughs> Thinking this great victory came from them. Jesus talks to us about this. He says at the end, some are going to say to me, <coughs> sorry, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Lord, we healed many in your name. We did incredible things in your name, God. And he's going to reply to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. 
This is something we have to be wary of. We have to watch out for ourselves and for those around us. What are the motivations? Motivations are important. The reason we do things is important. Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil. Sorry. (coughs) That we have recovered, except that each man (coughs) may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. right there (laughs) the Lord has preserved us and given us into our hands the band that came against us who would listen to you in this matter for as his share is who goes down into the battle so shall his share be with who stays by the baggage they shall share alike. And he made his statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And this is the portion of the scripture where I came to where I really had the thought, what has the Lord given us? It's where the whole emphasis of our chapter came from. What has the Lord given us? And do we realize the word everything should follow that thought? everything that we think makes up ourselves, everything that resides in our home, everything we do, every moment is from the Lord. But it's so easy to think it's from our own strength, from our own talents, from our own abilities, from our own working, stepping forward. I earned this. I got this. This is because of me. This is because of my diligence. This is because of my efforts, my intelligence, my aptitude that I've come to this place. But I want you to think for a moment about something that makes you, you. I'm going to use a couple of examples here. Let's say you're good at your ha- with your hands. Incredible craftsman. It's amazing the things that you can do. Things that you can put together or take apart or just anything you put your hands to. It's just incredible and you take great pride in your work I think this is a part of me I'm good at this this is my gift how quickly can that be taken away with arthritis when your, your joints begin to ache and swell when you can no longer move your fingers the way they used to how much of that gift was yours Inherently, or something you were given, something to cherish and use of God? What if you have amazing intelligence, the ability to solve problems, go into a situation and assess it, and have just remarkable insight, just brilliance from God, something He's given you? How quickly can that be taken away when we get Alzheimer's and we go through an undoing of ourselves? Is it our gift? Or is it something that we've been given to care for for a time? 
We have to realize this. We have to own this. Because this can be especially hard <clears throat> when we encounter that loss. And the most acute way that we can all universally recognize this in life is the loss of a loved one. Do we focus so much in that moment on the loss? The fact that everybody is going to go and meet their creator. They're all going to meet Jesus. I'm sorry if I'm, this is the first time you've been told this in this room. You're going to go meet Jesus someday. You're going to leave this earth. We don't know when, but it's going to happen to every single one of us. But when that happens, do we focus on the loss of it, that we no longer have this person anymore? Or do we celebrate the gift of the time we were given? Do you celebrate how wonderful it was while we had it? Do we enjoy the memories? Do we celebrate the fondness, knowing we're going to meet them again? It's going to be sad while they're not here. But God gave us a tremendous gift, didn't he? Can we still say in the trial, blessed be the name of the Lord? When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends. It's kind of an interesting finishing to the chapter. I want to make sure we cover it before I circle us back. The elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Najed, in Jatir, in Arar, in Sifmoth, Eshtimoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jehomelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Barashan, in Atach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. He had gone to a lot of places. And he sent them all gifts. And it's kind of an odd thing to mention at the end of this chapter. This has nothing to do with this chapter other than you got the spoil from there. Why, are you, why didn't you just say, and you gave it to a lot of people? And realizing that this is planning ahead. David's planning on becoming king. It's been anointed for it. It's going to happen. But how it happens is not set in stone. It could be a really, really difficult transition. People could really fight against it. Or it could go smoothly. It could go with people going, yeah, David's great. Obvious choice. Bring him in. It all depends on how David presents himself to the people. Out of Proverbs 19.6, which is written by David's son, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. David's ingratiating himself to others. He's choosing not to hold on to the material things, to not enrich himself, but choosing to give. Choosing to show that he is a generous person, that he considers others and their well-being, and that he's thinking about them. And there's nothing wrong with having that thought. There's nothing wrong with looking ahead at your future and going, wow, I would really love to have people around me that love me and care for me and want to help me as I help them. We can go into thinking that's a selfish thought. Well, it's just for your gain. No, it's about the whole rest of our lives together. That when we move forward, isn't it wonderful that we have this great community around us to help in times of need and transition and struggle? 
and we spend time on each other to strengthen these relationships so that the relationships are there because we all need each other from time to time. There's nothing wrong with planning ahead. It's actually wise to look forward and be considerate of others. So I want to circle back. Where do we go from here? Back to our main emphasis of today, that focus on what the Lord has given us. How do we respond in the most difficult of times when things are taken away, when your boat is rocked, when things are hard and it just didn't go the way you wanted to? How do we make godly choices in those moments? And I want to end us with a passage from one of the prophets that was asking that same question. It's the prophet Micah, and he's going before God. Lord, what do you, what do you want, God? Do you want 10,000 barrels of oil? Do you want me to sacrifice 1,000 rams? What do you want from me? Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Doing justice is more than just going on a crusade against the unjust things that are happening. That can be your entire life. There is always going to be unjust things happening. It's more than just going up against the, I know this is wrong and I'm going to fight against this forever. Do that. But it's more than that. It's also choosing to do what's just day by day. It's choosing in the little decisions of your life to make the godly choice and not the easy choice. It's choosing to honor people and respect people. It's choosing to make the godly decision even when it doesn't benefit you in a worldly way. It might actually cause harm to you from the worldly perspective, but it delivers God's justice because you've chosen to do what was right. You've chosen to own up to your mistakes. You've chosen to do justice and to love kindness. We, each and every one of us, have a choice of how we enter into conflict, how we enter into situations, how we approach the difficult times and the difficult conversations. We can approach it in anger, in haste, in frustration, or we can approach it with an attitude of humility, of consideration, of a desire to bring peace and restoration. Because there is nowhere in Scripture that anger and haste is described as a good thing. It's only ever described as folly. And if you react in those things, it will result in folly. Folly means acting like a fool. Modern day version, acting like someone you'd say, that person is an idiot. How on, why on earth did they think that would work out? Well, I, I was angry. Did that work for you? Well, no. We are always called through practical wisdom to stop and if you can't answer in kindness, even if you're angry, it says don't sin in your anger. Not 
don't be angry. Angry is a natural emotion that you've been given. It says don't sin in your anger. If you can't approach the situation with kindness and humility and an attitude, I'm, I'm looking for restoration and peacemaking here, then you need to spend more time before God. I need to spend more time before God. We need to spend more time before God if we can't do that in the moments. Don't have the conversation. Say, I'm not in a place to talk about this right now, but we do need to talk about it. I recognize it, but I can't do that right now. I'm just going to lash out and there's not going to be productive. Can we try again tomorrow? And if it's anybody reasonable, they'll say, okay. If they say no, they're not unreasonable and you can still put it before God and you still don't have the conversation. Realizing we need to love kindness. Kindness brings restoration. Kindness brings people together. Kindness diffuses. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. And to walk humbly with your God. Recognizing who it all comes from, who it all belongs to, who has given you everything. Walk in that. Lord, thank you for every day, every moment, every breath. It's a gift. If in a moment you decided you were done, we wouldn't even know it because it would be done. Do we walk with that level of humility? Knowing it's not going to necessarily, it doesn't have to be big explosions and this mighty thing. And God should just go, nothing. Do we walk in that humility before God? It all comes from you. And I'm going to walk with you, Lord. Please keep correcting me and reminding me day by day so that I turn back to you. Job 1.21 Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.